Good. Well, welcome to everybody to Bear Island. We, Teresa just told us the weather is going to be very good, so it's, it's warm anyway. I'd like to welcome all those who are joining us uh, um, on the webcast and uh, welcome you also to the beginning of our Holy Week retreat. And if you haven't been, at least virtually, to Bear Island before, uh, we hope that you will get some sense of this uh, very beautiful place in West Cork, in the southwest of Ireland, uh, in the mouth of uh, Bantry Bay. It's a little island at the edge of the known world, uh, nothing but the Atlantic uh, on our behind us here. And a uh, place uh, I feel a very uh, strong connection with, because uh, my mother was born here. And although I didn't come here till I was about 12 or so, uh, I grew up with uh, stories of Bear Island, which I discovered, of course, mostly to be completely untrue. But that's one of the things I want to talk about today is true stories. But actually, there was a truth in all the stories, and uh, part of that truth is a wonderful sense of beauty here and of hospitality, of friendship among the people. I'm not saying they're all saints, uh, but they are certainly very loving and wel welcoming people. And um, uh, they make the visitors here and the people on retreat every year uh, very, very welcome. So uh, I hope that for all of us here um, in person or taking part in the retreat uh, through the webcast, that these coming days will be uh, a time of enrichment a time of uh, deepening and an opportunity to prepare uh, in this last lap, uh, to prepare for Easter and so that we can come in, uh, please come in. Uh, I'm going to ask everyone to be a little punctual, uh, or no, to be very punctual actually in future because one of the reasons is, is that if people come in late, they not only cross the camera but they make me very irritated and then people see how irritated I am and then that sort of defuses the value of what I'm going to say. So uh, I, for those reasons I would ask you to be on time uh, but it's nice to see you. Good. Um, so I hope that as I say the, this time of re retreat can prepare us for uh, the celebration of, of Easter and the way we go through the great rituals, the great um, ceremonies of, uh, of the Triduum, uh, the, the three days of Easter, culminating, of course, in the um, uh, Easter Vigil. And for us, at 6 o'clock or so in the morning, when we go to the Standing Stone at the exact centre of the island, a very ancient, prehistoric remnant of early life here on the island. We go there early in the morning to welcome the, the rising sun and the risen Christ. So um, I hope that these, these days uh, of retreat will be uh, enriching in themselves, but also particularly a preparation for, for Easter. We only have so many Easter's uh, in our lives to, to, to benefit from. And uh, the better prepared we are for each, 
uh, we come to each of these Paschal uh, celebrations. We, co we come each year. We come to it with all that we have become since the, the previous year, uh, and so it's never exactly the same. We tell the same story. We repeat the same rituals, but we ourselves have changed, and we are able, therefore, to be taught and to be uh, touched by the mysteries of Easter more richly, more deeply. And I think in each of these years of uh, celebration, we, 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 we should progress. We should uh, go through a, a kind of a spiritual watershed uh, into a deeper, clearer, more simple understanding of the mystery of Christ, the heart of our faith. So one of the, one of the things, of course, uh, uh, about the, re this re the retreat here is that um, we, we gather here uh, twice a day uh, to, uh, to, to reflect and to meditate together. And then we go back to uh, either our homes or, or to our uh, accommodation, our lodgings. And how you handle that balance is, is up to you, of course. But I would recommend that you reflect, uh, talk together with the people that you're sharing a space with, if you are, how you might like to, uh, to meditate together in the morning. Uh, and again, how you would like to end the day, how maybe meditate together at the end of the day, depending on where you are, who you're staying with. Um, it's better to prepare for that and talk about that so that uh, you can take advantage of the opportunity to, to, to make each day uh, a balance, each day uh, a, uh, a, a deeper sort of entry into the silence. So how you practice the silence is going to be up to you. Nobody's going to be going, running around the uh, roads on the island catching you if you start talking. Um, there are no CCT cameras to catch you. So it's, it's really uh, an opportunity for each of us to, to find the level of silence that you want and need to practice and that you can practice and maybe it's something you want to go deeply into, and I'll talk about silence quite a bit in this retreat because I think we find a great deal of understanding about the mystery of Christ uh, in the experience of silence. So I'll be speaking about silence, but more important than speaking about it is, of course, practicing it. So I'd again just ask you to reflect on that uh, on your own, but also with whoever you're sharing your space with, uh, to decide how you're going to use this quite rare opportunity, really, to, to be in silence, in a friendly, uh, relaxed, but in a, uh, a deep way. One little uh, tool I would suggest uh, that you um, might like to use is uh, uh, writing a little poem that in the Japanese call a haiku. It's a three-line poem. Um, and it's meant to be a kind of a verbal uh, 
snapshot of something that has caught your attention or touched you or taught you in some way. It could be something you see, something you smell, something you, you are aware of. But it should be quite, quite sensible and tangible and, uh, and real. So, um, I mean, you can do what you like, but the idea of a haiku is that it should be quite precise and concrete, not sort of not abstract and pious. So it should be really quite snappy and, and catchy. So the, uh, the traditional format is three lines. I always forget how many syllables. Is it seven, five, seven? I forget. I think it is. Yeah, seven, five, seven, anyway, I think it is. Um, that's if you want to be very precise. Uh, and it's maybe helpful to do that because you, you are the, it, it's a bit of a discipline. And practicing the discipline of a little form of poetry like that can be very helpful. It can uh, hold your attention, keep your mind focused. And it's uh, a way of staying silent uh, while using words, very few words, but using them in a very sort of um, measured way. So, and then if you like to do those haikus, um, you can do, keep a notebook with you and do them wherever you like, or you can work on them uh, later. It's a little creative uh, exercise that you might find helpful to maintain that spirit of silence uh, during the retreat. And if you, if you do these, then uh, we'd, we'd all like to see them, and you might like to bring them and put them on the table here so that you don't have to sign them. We won't have a competition at the end. So you can just uh, share those little insights uh, that have come to you with others. In the uh, Gospel today, we read the Passion narrative according to the Gospel of Matthew. And we read it in a slightly dramatized way. Everybody in the congregation speaking the part of the crowd and a few other people speaking particular roles. And we tell that story, and we'll tell it again, of course, on, uh, on Good Friday. We tell that story at the beginning of Holy Week so that we can be in the story, so that the, the, the details the, which, with which we are probably, most of us, very familiar from childhood, we can be, um, they, they are, we're reminded of them, they're, we're, they're highlighted again for us in our imagination. If you learnt that, if you were immersed in those stories from childhood on, then they're part of your imagination as they are part of our culture and part of our art and music and in the Western and Christian world in particular. But uh, maybe you aren't so familiar with the story and so the story has a freshness to you. And hopefully, even if you are very familiar with it, uh, by coming into the story in this way, it will become refreshed for you. It will become, uh, you will notice new things or new angles or new, new details of it. 
And if you are new to it, if the story is still quite fresh for you, uh, we hope that it will become more familiar as you live with it and allow it to live in you and to become part of your imagination. One of the um, things that struck me as I listened to it today was actually uh, because I was the priest, the celebrant uh, at the Mass uh, usually takes the part of Jesus. And I had very little to say because Jesus doesn't say very much in the Gospel of John, uh, Gospel of Matthew, he does in other Gospels a bit more. So I was a bit of a walk-on part for that. But it made me aware of how silent Jesus is in the story and what a, what a strong presence, of course, he has and everything revolves around him. Um, but he is profoundly silent and strongly silent um, throughout. And I think the silence of Jesus is his greatest teaching to us. And that's why I'd like to take that as our main theme for this coming week. What we call fact, and we're very interested and concerned about facts in our uh, scientific world. We want facts. When we, in courts of law, we want facts. In science, we want facts. In political contro controversies, we want to get to the facts. So we have this uh, great preoccupation with facts. But sometimes it's such a preoccupation that we forget the context and the meaning of the facts. And what we call fact can easily become a filter that we make with words or phrases or our imagination and fantasy. We create facts in order not to discover reality, but to avoid it, or to present a version of reality that we like, or that is more convenient for us, in, uh, in favor of a more uh, a reality that is uh, difficult or embarrassing or inconvenient for us. And there's a great fear today in this world of alternate, al of, uh, what, was it, what was the great expression? Alternate facts? Alternate facts. So it was a sort of a, a, a rather chilling statement of, of brazen, a brazen, um, very open in a way, very honest uh, statement that if, if these facts don't suit, I have other facts for you. And these other facts, you know, will be more uh, successful. So there's a fear, a growing fear today in our attitude towards politicians and religious figures very often and scientists or journalists 
there's a fear that we can't trust words or facts as they are presented to us anymore. And that's very disturbing because everything is built on trust. If you're in a marriage or a friendship or in a community or in a contract or in a business and trust goes out of the window or trust is destroyed, it's a very frightening and disturbing uh, experience and you don't know where you are when trust has been destroyed. So we fear today we can't trust anything or very little of what certain types of people in posi positions of power or influence what they say. Politicians or social scientists or economists or bishops or, sci or whatever. And in the uh, recent Brexit uh, uh, referendum, there was a kind of a universal rejection of experts. The experts had one opinion, but people didn't trust experts anymore and the facts that they were presenting. So experts were untrustworthy. Um, so words in that kind of situation and it is frightening, disturbing, because it undermines really the basis of any uh, normal society. Words become a kind of infinite regression. It's like when you put one mirror in front of another and you get an image of the mirror and everything that is reflected in one mirror is reflected in the other and if you look into it, you just see this infinite uh, regression of one image after the other. And it's quite scary when words themselves become like that. They just regress or they have circular meanings. The definition of one word is what you, what you just said about it. It just goes round and round and doesn't get anywhere. And life and meaning become very superficial very circular. And that's uh, 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 an anxiety that's been present in the modern consciousness for a long time. I was um, in Dublin uh, a few days ago and uh, I noticed uh, outside uh, a hotel that I was passing by there was a plaque uh, up on the wall saying that Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, the philosopher, had stayed and worked there for some, some months in, whatever it was, in the 1940s or 50s. And uh, Wittgenstein uh, is only published with perhaps one of the, perhaps the most uh, influential, game-changing, philosopher of the 20th century, uh, only published one book in his lifetime. Um, and, uh, and Wittgenstein's, uh, Wittgenstein was also very touched by this anxiety and this, this question of, the, of language and meaning and how we communicate, how we share the truth and 
he, he summed it up in this one book that he, that he published, his notebooks were published later, but he says, what can be said at all can be said clearly. And what we cannot speak about should be left silent. Sounds a very simple philosophical statement. Uh, and not all of his statements are as easy or as simple as that. But actually, it was his very e extraordinary perception of simplicity and the simplicity of truth that, has, that made him such an important voice, I think, in modern, in modern thought, modern consciousness. He gave up academic philosophy at some point to, to, teach, uh, to teach young children. Um, what we can say should be said clearly. What we can't say should be consigned to silence. Does that mean that what is consigned to silence cannot be known or experienced or communicated? I think we know as meditators that silence is not the absence of consciousness, that silence is in fact a very full form of consciousness, that meditation is the work of silence, It is the practice of attention, of simple attention. It is silent and it is simple. And in that still silence of contemplative consciousness that meditation opens up for us, we as meditators and as Christian meditators believe, know in some way that we actually do know what cannot be spoken about, but which belongs in silence and can only be known in silence. In some ways, this is very countercultural for us today because uh, we like to talk and we have endless talk shows. And we turn on the radio first thing in the morning and it's chat and we listen to chat in the car, and we listen to music or radio in restaurants and elevators and uh, airports and cafes and wherever we are. We're constantly exposed to this flow of talk. And of course, talking can be very therapeutic. Freud, inventor of Psychoanalysis called his work talking therapy, just getting people to talk about their memories, about their experiences, about what they were frightened of, about what they were fantasizing about or what they were obsessed about. That uh, to get people to talk could be healing. So no one denies that talking is and can be very healing. But a lot of research has been done into talk therapy and it's generally believed that if 
talk is the only part of therapy, the only part of psychotherapy, the therapy itself is not very effective. That silence needs to be part of the healing work of, of psychotherapy. In the same way, we might say, in worship, in the way we worship in church, synagogue, mosque or temple, uh, silence is uh, rarely part of our experience and uh, it isn't usually something that people object to if they are given the opportunity to be silenced, for example, during the Mass. But uh, it needs to be explained because people are unfamiliar with it and can be sometimes a little disturbed by it if they're suddenly dropped into silence and they think the, the priest has fallen off to sleep. So, but it's part of our uh, way of worship today, rather like the way we live, that we, we don't admit the value of silence into the way we worship. Um, but there is a time to speak and a time to be silent. The secret, of course, is to integrate it, to recognize the balance between these two ways of knowing and communicating. What can be spoken of can be said clearly. What cannot be spoken of should be left in silence. Well, we should know the, the difference, the distinction. We should have the wisdom, the sensitivity, the discretion to know what can be spoken about clearly and transparently and what can be and should be left into silence. And of course, silence is part of speech. Apparently, when we use, when we make consonants, uh, there is a, I quite see it, hear it myself, but when we, when we form a consonant, we are actually there's a, there is a fraction of silence in each consonant we say, and speech is a, um, a flow between consonants and vowels, for in, Eng in our languages anyway. And um, in the same way, our sentences and our words have silences between them, and those silences can be very expressive. And if we talk non-stop, uh, we very quickly lose uh, the capacity to pay attention. It's just a stream of words. And there's no syntax, there's no um, um, syntax of silence that allows us to make sense and to give us time to absorb it. So, actually, silence and speech are not so separated. They work together, they should work together. When we are exposed to a longer period of silence than we're used to, we can f the silence could be very awkward. People say there was an awkward silence in the conversation. It may have been the most truthful moment in the conversation, when actually what was being, what had been shared or what, was, what everybody knew but 
wasn't at that moment able to speak about clearly, uh, was out in the open. So it could have been a very healing and therapeutic and truthful moment, that silence, but we often think of it as an awkward silence and we try to cover it up. Silence can also be quite fearful. We can be frightened of silence because, and many people are frightened of meditation, because silence takes us into a new place, a new way of being, into, a, we say, a deeper place, but it's a more truthful place, where it's not so easy to distract ourselves, to stay running from the truth or dressing it up. And in silence, we can, we can fear we can, we can experience it as a fearful ex uh, uh, moment because we, we feel we're losing control. We're falling into silence. As you might fall over a cliff or something. That's what, how we might all have felt about meditation originally. Later, we see that that silence is not anything to be frightened of. It's actually something that we look forward to in our regular meditation times as part of our life. We see after a busy day, we can see silence, the silence of meditation as a, a wonderful gift, a wonderful uh, privilege in a way. I mean, to be able to drop the, the activities, the, the mental busyness, uh, the words, uh, the planning, the analyzing, we can just drop all of that and we can open ourselves to this other way of being, this other state uh, where we let go of words and thoughts and images and enter into silence. But at first, our very first experience of meditation probably wasn't like that. Some people fall straight into it but, and experience it very quickly, but others, most of us, uh, I think, uh, w want to hang on to the side of the swimming pool before we push out, you know, and start swimming. So we hang on to words, we hang on to images, and religious people in particular uh, can be like this. They find that they're attracted to contemplation, to the silence of contemplation. Uh, they've read about it, but they also may have some intuitive uh, feeling of being drawn to it but it's difficult for them to, to let go of the side of the pool, to let go of the words and the images and the petitions and the intercessions and the prayers until a moment comes when they lose that fear and can let go. So, uh, so silence is worth thinking about, not only, as we might say, in terms of our own spiritual journey or our own healing, but also very much in terms of the kind of world we are living in and passing on to, our, to the next generation. 
And I think if we listen carefully to the story of Jesus, or the climax of his story that we are focusing on this, uh, this week, um, we will learn a lot about silence, both as it impacts upon our own health and our own mental and spiritual health, uh, upon our own inner journey, but also upon um, the way we live responsibly as citizens uh, in, a, in a troubled uh, world. Let's just, bef before we meditate now, let's just call to mind uh, up to this uh, climax of the story, some of the times in the life of Jesus, reflected in all of the Gospels, um, in which we see Jesus acquainted with silence and happy and drawn to solitude. The first, of course, is um, at the beginning of his public ministry after his baptism, he is drawn into the desert. Well, that's been part of our thinking and imagination for the whole of Lent. The 40 days in the desert became our 40 days of Lent. And he went into the desert led by the Spirit and prayed and fasted. What we do each time we meditate, we fast from words, from plans, from thoughts, and we enter into the experience of pure prayer. So right at the beginning of his life, we see him preparing for his, his, his work, his ministry, uh, in, with this time of silence and solitude. And then also before his, the major decisions of his life, for example, choosing his 12 disciples, he took time again in the, in the wilderness or in the desert to, um, to be alone and to clarify his mind, to, to come to a, a clear uh, point of uh, insight and wisdom before making that decision. And interestingly, uh, often at, uh, presumably in a way, at ext extreme moments in his life, uh, or moments of loss, his, his response was also to withdraw after the death of John the Baptist. We're told that he withdrew to a secluded place, didn't go on to a chat show. He, uh, he withdrew to a secluded place. We need, even Jesus needed, but we need, uh, we need the space, the time, the environment, we're human beings, just as we need nutrition, we need balance, we need a certain kind of diversity uh, in our life to keep us healthy. 
but we also need these times of seclusion, solitude, times of retreat like this. We also see him withdrawing into silence and into solitude when he became too popular, too busy, when the crowds were really being revved up. Now, no politician would, would do that. Uh, once you've worked up a crowd, you, you then manipulate the crowd. You don't then disappear off the airwaves uh, for three days. But Jesus um, sent the crowds away and went up the mountain to pray by himself. And uh, I think any uh, spiritual, great spiritual leader, you take people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, also um, that they, you know, working at, at that high level of, um, of popularity or of publicity and controversy, uh, had to be able to step aside from it, to step aside from the crowd and the, uh, the, the dynamics of, uh, of, of popularity or the, popula or the populace uh, and to, to go back into solitude. Um, and in his own work, his healing work especially, we see Jesus uh, telling the people he'd healed not to speak about it. It wasn't his intention to use these healings as, you know, PR material to let everybody know um, who he was and uh, increase his, his ratings. Uh, he often withdrew to the wilderness and prayed, St. Luke tells us, especially after these healings. And then, of course, in Gethsemane, the night before his death, uh, he withdraws to a place of prayer that's uh, not so far from Jerusalem, if you actually, uh, just a few minutes' walk, but it sounds as if it was a long way across the Kedron Valley. And uh, he withdrew there, familiar place of prayer, and with his disciples in the silence of the night. And he went there. Uh, to pray with them and to be alone simultaneously, rather as we are when we're on a retreat, to be alone and to be with others. Very special kind of relationship, special kind of intimacy, a special kind of trust builds up when you can do that with people. And so he says to the disciples, sit here for a while, while I go and pray over there. And of course he comes back and they've all fallen asleep. Um, so they're not quite able to keep up with him. And they were frightened and they just had the Last Supper, so they probably were feeling a bit um, full. But uh, this, the relationship here that we can see between solitude and friendship is a very important part of this uh, meaning of silence. So um, we'll look uh, tomorrow at more uh, examples in this uh, climax of the story. 
during his trial and, and in the Passion, where the silence of Jesus, that he's, he's lived and practiced all his life, that has been part of his way of being, his way of teaching, his way of healing, his way of witnessing, uh, how that silence has now come to a very rich and, uh, and powerful level of development in him. So again, the practical sort of application of this is uh, seeing these coming days, and if you're just dipping into the retreat through, um, through the uh, webcast, I think you find your own way uh, of doing that. Um, but if you're here on retreat uh, on the island, it's um, going to be easier, but also it needs some planning and some discussion to decide how you're going to uh, make these aspects of silence and solitude real uh, for you in the, in the coming days. But even if you don't, we'll be meditating uh, here together. And uh, these, it's kind of a concertina approach. We, we come together, we go apart, we come together again. But the silence can be a, a continuous element in that, um, in that process. So let's prepare for meditation now. Let me uh, remind you again of the simplicity and what we can say about meditation can be said uh, clearly. And then what we cannot put into words, we allow to be known in the silence. So your physical posture is always important because we meditate as a whole person. It's not just a head exercise. It's something that involves the body and the mind and the spirit. So it's always good to take a few moments to be aware of your physical posture, to sit straight with your back straight, to relax your shoulders, your feet on the ground or your hands on your lap or on your knees, so that you feel both relaxed and alert. Let the muscles of your face relax. Close your eyes lightly. And then, very simply, be aware of your breathing. You don't have to change the way you're breathing, just be conscious of your breathing. This is a little mindful exercise that prepares us for meditation because it's beginning to take the attention off our thoughts, that constant stream of chatter going through our minds. We can't turn it off like we turn off the radio, 
but we can take the attention off the stream of verbal and visual and conceptual consciousness, thoughts or words or ideas. So in, during the meditation, we lay aside our thoughts, even our good thoughts. Sometimes you are lucky and you get some good thoughts. Sometimes you can solve the problems of the Western world in your meditation. But when, as soon as you realize that you have stopped taking the attention off your thoughts, that your attention has become attached to your thoughts again, good or bad, you let go of the thought, word or image. Even if it's religious or spiritual or interesting or brilliant. And to let go of the thoughts, we follow a very ancient tradition. We take a word, a sacred word, a mantra, and we repeat the word faithfully in our minds and hearts during the whole time of the meditation. So we sit down, we sit still, we close our eyes, and we repeat a single word continuously and faithfully. Silently, without moving our lips or our tongue, saying it interiorly, sounding it, listening to it, gently without force, and faithfully, meaning that we return to the word continuously. And simply, meaning that we are not evaluating ourselves or how things are going or whether we are good or bad meditators. That is not relevant. So choosing the word is important because you want to stay with the same word all the way through the meditation and from day to day. And the word I would recommend is the word Maranatha. Maranatha is the oldest Christian prayer. It means, come Lord. It's in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. And St. Paul ends the first letter to the Corinthians with it. It was already a very sacred and special word for the very early Christians. If you choose this word, say it as four syllables, ma ra na tha ma ra na tha i would suggest you don't don't visualize the word but listen to it as you sound it ma ra na tha you'll find your own rhythm say it gently and faithfully we could lead into the meditation with this a short prayer uh, that John Main composed. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the Spirit of your Son. Lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. <laughs>